his name is Doubting Thomas. Now, doubting is not actually part of his name. But it is his nickname. It's a sort of nickname that you really don't want. I mean, I mentioned to you a few weeks ago that my nickname playing basketball was Mighty Mouse. And really, Mighty Mouse wasn't the most appealing nickname because it brought attention to my stature, my height, my shortness. But I must admit, my nickname pales in comparison to poor Thomas's nickname. I mean, Thomas was one of the 12 disciples. He had lived a life with Christ for three years. And yet he's forever known for his lack of faith. By his weak faith, he's known as Doubting Thomas. But I ask you this morning, is Doubting Thomas really a fair nickname for him? I mean, last week, We talked about the fact that all the disciples turned their backs on Christ. As we mentioned, Matthew 26, 56 says, All the disciples left him, that's Christ, and fled. And yet, we don't call the other disciples doubters. I mean, Peter lied. He blatantly lied three times about even knowing Christ. And we don't call Peter lying Peter. So what gives? Why is Thomas called Doubting Thomas? Well, let's open our Bibles and find out. Our main text this morning will be John 20, 24 through 31. John 20, 24 through 31. And the title of this message is The Doubters, the Drifters, and the Grace which saves both. Let's go to our Lord as we begin. Holy Father, we praise you. We, I, just, I love this season right now, Father, as we think about you coming to earth, Christ coming and, and, and saving us. Thank you for your love and your grace for us. We thank you that you've created this group known as the church community of believers to love you and serve you and to lift you up and to show your love and grace to a world that is running far away from you. We thank you for your grace in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're John 20, starting at verse 24, starts by saying this. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them, that's the disciples, when Jesus came. Here John is referring to what we saw last week when the disciples were all in the house, huddled together in fear, scared that the Jews were going to catch them and crucify them like they did their Lord, and Christ visits them. But in John 20, 24, we find out that Thomas wasn't with 
the disciples when Christ appeared. So the rest of the disciples besides Thomas that were once full of fear are now rejoicing. They are now renewed and revived in their faith because they had just encountered the resurrected, the risen Savior. But we again, we see that Thomas wasn't with the rest of the disciples when Jesus made this miraculous visit. And John doesn't really tell us why Thomas wasn't there. But we can assume he was somewhere upset, in shock, horrified, confused, discouraged over the arrest and the crucifixion of his Lord and Savior. As we mentioned again last week, Thomas, like the others, thought Jesus was going to be a militant Messiah who would reign and rule over the world and conquer the Romans. And now Thomas's hopes, his dreams, his faith in Christ had faded. It had vanished. It had dissipated. Which takes us to why Thomas is known as the great doubter. John 20, 25 says this. So the other disciples told him, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So the other disciples tell Thomas that they have seen the Lord, right? And you would think this would cause Thomas to celebrate, to be renewed with hope, to be revived in faith. But Thomas, without hesitation, reacts. And he reacts viscerally like someone who isn't a believer at all. He says again, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Because of this passage, Thomas is historically known as the doubter. But in reality, it's not doubt that comes out of Thomas' heart. It's not mere questioning if Christ is Lord and Savior, but it's unbelief. It's confident unbelief. He says, I will never believe. That isn't a doubter, but a confident unbeliever. So calling Thomas a doubter seems far-fetched because a doubter implies someone who is wavering or wrestling with their faith. And it's someone who has weak faith, maybe vacillating in their faith. But with Thomas, we some, see something here altogether different. Thomas has given up on Christ. Thomas has given up on having faith in Christ. Thomas seems to have decided that Jesus wasn't who he said he was. Christ wasn't Thomas's Messiah any longer. What a different place Thomas is in than the rest of the disciples. Again, the other disciples full of faith while Thomas has no faith. The disciples were renewed in their faith while Thomas's faith was now dead. 
question is why? What set Thomas apart from the other disciples? Well, again, we just read it, right? John 20, 24. It tells us, Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Christ came. Thomas wasn't with the other disciples. He wasn't with the community of believers when Christ made a house call. I wonder what that night would have looked like when Christ appeared to the disciples. I wonder about today if Christ still makes house calls to his children, to his church. Well, this leads to point number one. Christ still visits his church. Point number one says that Christ still visits his church. I don't mean he's physically going to show up and sit on the front row. I mean, if he did, I would be definitely intimidated. I mean, I would make sure that it was the week that Casey was preaching when Christ came. So I'm not talking about how he appeared to the disciples physically, but we know Christ is here in our midst. Because Ephesians 5 says that Christ is the head of the church, and we are his Bride. We are his bride, which means Christ loves the church. Christ takes care of the church. So Christ is active. He is involved. He is working. He is guiding. He is leading and serving his bride, which is the church. Which, guess who is the church? Us. We are. Knowing that the church is the bride of Christ, gives us clarity of how important it is for us to be a part of the church, to be plugged into the body of Christ. It's special. It's a joyful opportunity. It's such a privilege to be the bride of Christ. We come together, for example, on Sunday mornings where we glorify God as a community. We lift up our voices to song, to praise God. We pray corporately as the body of Christ, and then we exalt Christ by preaching biblically. But Christ isn't just a part of Sunday morning service, but Christ is a part of the church wherever the church is. It could be in connect groups, or our men's, or women's life, or we see that Christ is at work in the food pantry, or the children's or youth ministry. Christ is leading his bride, the body of Christ. And we should be enthusiastic. We should be humble that Christ sees us fit to be his. Amen? To be in relationship with us. To be in our midst in the local church. I wonder if we know how special it is to be in the family of God. If we see how privileged we are to be a part of the local church. Hebrews 10, 25, a familiar passage says this, not neglecting to meet together as it is a habit of some, but encouraging one another. Here we see that the church is supposed to continue to get together, to worship together, to be the family of God. 
And you may be wondering why Hebrews tells us to continue to keep meeting together, right? The answer is because the first century church was riddled with problems. You won't believe this, but people struggled to get along. They struggled to build relationships with each other. They honestly, you won't even believe this, they honestly struggled to love each other and to sacrifice themselves for the others. And this may be a surprise. It may be a shocker to some of us this morning, but we are no different today. The church is still imperfect. The church is still filled with sinners. And people still want to give up on the church. Give up on the family of God. My question is, how can we give up on the bride of Christ? How can we give up on what Christ died for? Which he says is the church. Well, truth be known, many have given up on the church. The problem is people really don't see the dangers that are associated with giving up on the church. It's similar to Thomas when he wasn't with the disciples that night. When Christ came to visit, he ended up missing Christ while the other disciples were strengthened in faith because they just spent time in the presence with Christ. And similarly, when we aren't with the body of Christ... When we aren't part of the local church, we miss seeing Christ as well. Let me give us just two consequences that occur when we drift away from our church family. Consequence number one. When we drift from the body, we miss seeing Christ. Let me say that again. When we drift from the body, we miss seeing Christ. When we drift or stop being involved in the local church, we miss out on seeing Christ. This idea of missing out reminds me of often what goes on in my family. Often I'll come home and the boys or my wife will greet me at the door and share some exciting news that happened that day. It may be something as exciting as our youngest didn't have a potty accident. Or the boys were good helpers to mommy. Or someone lost a tooth. Or mommy didn't have to give very many spankings. Okay, some of these, you're thinking, they don't sound very exciting, right? But when you're in potty training mode and there are no accidents that day, I will tell you, that's a really good day. But often when I come home and they share what has ha happened that day, I often think, man, I really missed out. I wish I could have experienced this or that with the family. And similarly, Thomas missed seeing Christ. He missed out what Christ was doing with the rest of the disciples. I wonder what we miss out on when we aren't plugged into the body of Christ. When we just go Sunday morning, but we're really not involved. We just sort of come and go as we please. No commitment, no real or lasting relationships. Usually when we're, when we're thinking this way, you, we usually look at church as an event instead of a living community. 
we miss Christ. We miss out on what God is doing with his people. We don't see the miracles that are occurring in the community of Christ. We don't see the marriages being healed. We don't see the numerous families being helped and loved. We don't see the close relationships being built and developed. We don't see the addictions being broken. We miss seeing Christ at work in his body. I wonder if this is some of us this morning. You may have made church just an hour event where your only connection to believers is on Sunday morning. But let me encourage you that the church is much more than an hour event, but we are a living and active community that are together through the week. We play together. We pray together. We help each other. We sometimes have to counsel one another. Because, church, we are called to love one another. But this leads to consequence number two. When we drift from the body, we drift from Christ. When we drift from the body, we drift from Christ. So when we aren't plugged into the church, we are not only missing Christ, but we ourselves drift from Christ personally. Let's listen again to John 20, 25 again. And it says this, So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, that's Thomas, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Thomas's response seems one of a hardened heart. One who is going his own way instead of following Christ. If we go back to John 11, we see a different Thomas altogether. In John 11, this is where Christ raised Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus informs the disciples that Lazarus has just died. And somehow Thomas misinterprets what Jesus says. And Thomas says this in John eleven sixteen, Let us go that we may die with him. Thomas was ready to follow Christ anywhere. He was ready to even die with Christ. He was in community. He was in close relationship with Christ and the other disciples. And yet, it seems Thomas drifted. His bold, faithful Christ is now gone in our present verses this morning. He has no faith in Christ any longer. Even though the other disciples say, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. Thomas's response to them like an angry atheist. Thomas drifted. He drifted away from Christ and it seemed he drifted away from the disciples who were in, he was in close relationship, close fellowship with, the disciples that, who were his, his family, his community. I wonder this morning if you have ever drifted if you have been on fire like Thomas, if you were sold out for Christ, where you were plugged into the body of Christ, you couldn't wait to get to Bible study or to the prayer meeting. But now, 
You can barely make it to Sunday morning service. And it's not because you're too busy. It's because you lost your first love. You've lost your love for Christ. And now there's all these other loves that have taken over. But you know you should love Christ, right? But you can this morning look at the rest of the disciples who just saw Christ and see their zeal, their joy, their strong faith in the Lord. This is what we all need, church. This is what we need. We need to live with those who have seen the risen Lord. Amen? Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. I read verse 25. I'm going to go back and read verse 24. Again, says this. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Here we see the reason why we should get together, why we should desire to come and be a part of the church. It's not so much for ourselves, but to encourage, to support, to bless others. Hebrews says again, stir up one another to love and good works which means we actively think about those within our community. This word here for stir can be translated as motivate or spur. So we stir others, we motivate others, we spur others on to live for Christ. The question is, why do you think this scripture tells us to consider how we can stir or spur or motivate one another toward love and good works. Why does it say it? It's because we are naturally good at drifting. That's what we do naturally in the flesh. It's like standing in the ocean and before you know it, you've drifted 20 yards one way or another. And you don't even realize that you think you're pretty close to where you started, right? That's how we are spiritually. We think we are on the right path, but without the church, without our community, we slowly start veering from Christ. We get further and further away without even realizing how far we have drifted. We see a shiny object, and we say, wow, let's go check that out, right? Or we think, this isn't exactly the best for me spiritually, but it'll be fun for the moment. Or, you know, I'm just so busy right now. I really can't focus on getting plugged into the church. But you know what? I'm going to work on that tomorrow. I'll get back on track. And before you know it, we are like Thomas. Our hearts have become hard. We have lost our passion, our zeal, and our love for Christ. We are going in a different direction than our family, the church the community we once loved so dearly. Brothers and sisters, let me plead with us this morning and let me say that we need each other. We need to encourage one another in the Lord. We need to be praying for each other daily. We need to be counseling one another biblically. We need to be serving each other selflessly. We need to love one another sacrificially. We need to be 
in the family of God. Not just to glorify God, but even for our own sakes. I wonder if you looked at the church this way. If you look at the body of Christ as a high priority in your life. It is an opportunity to see Christ and be near to Christ. But I have to move on because we got a lot of other verses to cover. So let's go to John 20, 26 and 27. John 20, 26 and 27. And it says this. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So Jesus visits the disciples again. It's almost a rewind of what we saw last week in our verses, where Jesus walks through a locked door, and all the disciples are gathered together, and he reveals himself to them. But it's different this time. Thomas is present. The unbeliever amongst the believers And similarly, this is the case today where believers and unbelievers come together in the church. I pray that if you are here this morning and you don't know Christ, if you don't have faith in Christ like Thomas, I pray Christ ministers to you this morning. I pray as Christ begins, as we'll see, to open up Thomas's eyes, I pray that he opens up your eyes as well with the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you see the love, that you see the gentleness, that you see the tenderness that Christ has for us this morning. And when he came, when Christ came into the house and saw Thomas, Christ here didn't react harshly to Thomas, did he? He didn't react and and recognize that Thomas abandoned him at the cross, right? And caused Christ to walk the cross alone. Nor did Christ confront Thomas for his arrogant unbelief. Christ meets Thomas, Thomas' unbelieving heart, with compassion. Christ meets Thomas' dead faith with active love. Christ says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now let's, for a moment, get just some congregation participation. I just need everyone to give me a simple yes or no. Here we go. Who was just arrested? Was it Thomas? No. Let's let's practice. No. No, right? Who was just tortured? Was it Thomas? No. Thank you. It was Christ, right? Who was just brutally killed? Was it Thomas? No. It was Christ, right? Who just faced the wrath of God? Was it Thomas? 
No, it was Christ. And yet, church, we see Christ, who is king, who is Lord, who is God, ministering, serving, doing what is best, and loving Thomas, the unbeliever. And that leads to point number two. Christ's love supersedes our doubts and our drifting hearts. Christ's love supersedes our doubts and our drifting hearts. I mean, think about it. Christ has these gaping holes, the marks in his hands from the nails, and Christ says, put your finger in the hole in my hands. And then, by the way, place your whole hand in my large hole in my side. The holes, the wounds themselves explain the depths of God's love for Thomas. I mean, Christ just died for Thomas. And still, Christ's love continues to flow as he shows eternal patience, pastoral kindness, and unbelievable gentleness to Thomas. Christ didn't give Thomas what he deserved, right? But we see in this moment, Christ gave Thomas something he didn't deserve. And the answer, of course, is that he gave Thomas his grace. What did Thomas deserve? Did he deserve Christ's favor? Did he deserve Christ answering his demands? Did he deserve Christ saying, put your hand in my wounds, Thomas? That was just the tip of the iceberg because Christ's grace wasn't given to Thomas only in that moment, but for a lifetime, but more than a lifetime, but Thomas received God's grace for the rest of eternity. Thomas seems to be getting so much as he himself offers nothing in return. question is, could Thomas truly give anything to Christ anyway? Could Thomas pay back Christ for such love and grace? I ask you this morning if we are any different than Thomas. What have we contributed to God? What gifts have we offered to pay back God for what he has done for us on the cross? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, a very familiar passage says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul says God's grace is a gift. It's not something that we can work for or earn or even pay back, but it is a simple gift an expensive, simple gift. I wonder if we are like Thomas and we doubt. Our hearts have drifted and we aren't sure about the love of Christ this morning. Well, I would encourage you. I would encourage us to look at his hands, see the marks, see the wounds. I would encourage us to see the hole, the gaping hole in his side. Church, we can't see Christ without seeing the cross. Christ will eternally wear the markings of love on his body. It's not a tattoo. 
It's not a birthmark, but scars of love that remind us of the grace that Christ has given us. The grace that has been poured out on those of us who are now children of God. Amen. Amen. Let's go back to our passages. We're now in John 20, 27 and 28. Then he, that's Jesus, said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. See in my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. What a response. I mean, doubting, unbelieving Thomas gives us one of the clearest lines about who Christ is in all of Scripture. Point number three, Christ is Lord and Savior because he is God. Point number three says that Christ is Lord and Savior because he is God. Christ was God. He is God. Who else would have been able to live perfectly in the flesh? Who else would have been able to withstand every temptation from the evil one? Who else would have been able to take on the wrath of God? Who else would have been able to give us their imputed or give us righteousness, his righteousness? And the answer is none other than God himself. It could only be done by God. I wonder if we see who Christ really is this morning. I wonder if we see more than just a nice guy. I wonder if we see more than just a charismatic leader. I wonder if we see more than just a savior. But we see both a Lord and a savior. If we see Christ fully this morning, we see God in the flesh. Christ bids us, he commands us to submit our lives to him, to wholly submit every area of our life to him, to place our marriages, our children, our jobs, ourselves, our entertainment, our very next breath under his authority. Well, Jesus responds to Thomas by saying this in John 20, 29. Have you believed Because you've seen me, blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Jesus responds by lovingly rebuking Thomas, reminding Thomas that next time he must trust. He must follow Christ. Don't be stubborn, Thomas. Don't be so pessimistic. But instead, be faithful to Christ. But... Christ also looks past Thomas and speaks to all who believe without seeing. Christ looks to future believers, which leads to point number four. Christ is talking to us, the blessed. Christ is talking to us, the blessed. Christ had us in mind when he said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Christ says we are blessed and the church is a community, but Christ doesn't just bless us generally as a group, but he blesses us individually as well. God knows each of us intimately. Christ knows us better than we know ourselves, church. 
And yet I'm afraid we forget that Christ knows us all by name. He knows us personally, intimately. I mean, how many of us don't know our own children? What if I went up to my son, Joby, who's three, and I looked and I said, I know you from somewhere, don't I? I mean, I think I know your name. It's on the tip of my tongue. He'd probably think daddy lost his mind, right? We know our children. We watch them. We take care of them. We teach them. We train them. We support them. We love them. And yet, church, we are sinful. We're flawed. Human parents. How much more does a perfect, holy, and loving God intimately know his children? How much more does Christ give us what we need? How much more does God teach and train us? Jesus reminds us this morning by saying in John 15, 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. The same love God had for his Son is the very same love Christ has for us. And the same love is why Christ went to the cross, right? John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. I wonder if we know the love of Christ this morning. Have we turned to Christ in repentance and faith? If we have, I wonder if we know that we are secure. We're confident in Christ's love, knowing that he knows us by name. It says he has numbered the very hairs on our heads. How loved we are as the body of Christ. How loved we are as children of God. How loved we are as individuals, chosen, accepted before the foundations of the earth, Ephesians 1 tells us. Well, let's conclude by reading the last section of our verses here, John 20, 30, and 31, which says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are now written in the book, in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I wonder if you are a doubter or a drifter, I know many times I am as often very weak in my own faith. But Christ comes to us this morning and says, trust me, believe in me. Christ lovingly, patiently, gently shows his scars, his wounds that reveals his great love for us. Christ transforms doubters and drifters into believers by his sovereign love and grace. Let's go to him in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you. It is just daunting how blessed we are as we start diving deep into your word and seeing the intricacy, the details of how you have taken care of us, how you have loved us individually and as the church, as the individuals make up the group, the body called the church, which is your bride, Father. Help us to never think that we can be Christians without being involved, being a part, being dedicated, committed to the bride of Christ. We thank you for your love for us, for your grace. Help us to be diligent, to repent of our daily struggles with sins, with 
the world and Satan, Father. We thank you for your grace and love on drifters like us. In Christ's name, amen.